Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Excuse My Rage, the podcast where we conduct the ultimate informational interview with people from all different backgrounds and businesses, unlock the gatekept secrets of the professional world, and hopefully help you get a little closer to wherever it is that you want to be. I'm your host, Emma Isaac, and today's guest is Kate Nelson, an award-winning Native American journalist and editor-in-chief of Artful Living magazine, a top independent boutique lifestyle magazine based in Minneapolis. In this episode, you're going to hear about her incredible achievements, her career journey thus far, and really get to know her work through her words. I am so excited for you all to hear about how she got to where she is today and the true impact that she's having within her industry, her community, and beyond. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. Kate. Hi, how are you? How are you? Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to see you, honestly, and talk to you. I feel like it's been so long. And I was so flattered when you reached out. First of all, I was like, is that my Emma? Um, you're Emma. And so I just loved seeing your name pop up. And this is so fun that you're doing this podcast just in general, because I feel like it's, this is, you know, what people want to know more about these types of things. And all of the other fluff is fine. But to really get into some of the, the nitty gritty is, is great. This is so exciting. And I was talking to my mom about this too. And I was like, I feel like this is such a cool thing. Because Kate is constantly interviewing people. But I am sure Kate has so much to say about how she got to where she is today. I don't know. There's just so much about it that it's really cool to me that the person behind the words is now getting a chance to share her own story. And like, I hope that that is what we're going to be able to do here. Because yeah, like I said, specifically, your career journey has just been so impressive to me. And it's it's inspirational. Well, thank you. I just want to give some bullet points of your accolades. And it's kind of hard to sum it up in bullet points because honestly, you've been doing so much. But for people that do not know who you are, this is Kate Nelson, an Alaska Native Klingit tribal member, award-winning Native American journalist based in Minneapolis. You're focused on amplifying important Native American change makers and issues. Currently, the editor-in-chief of Artful Living magazine, which is a boutique lifestyle magazine. You will soon be shifting to editor-at-large to do even more incredible focused work for your community. You have covered indigenous topics for top publications, which I am so impressed by reading through some of these, including L. Esquire, The BBC, The Guardian, The Daily Beast, Teen Vogue. This is just to name a few, everybody, okay? She has done so much work. She has also interviewed incredible guests, such as Martha Stewart, Andrew Zimmern, Mo Brings Plenty, so many more. She has brought their stories, their words to life through her words. So I am very excited to be able to talk about Kate's story, about all that she's been doing in this. But I do want to say before, because awards and accolades, I feel like people don't get to talk on them enough and we don't get to like shine so much light about how incredible it is, these awards and accolades that you have achieved. So I'm actually going to read some of these off, all right? 2019 Folio Rising Star Award, 2020 Folio Eddie and Ozzy Awards Honorable Mention, 2020 Folio Top Women in Media Award, 
2022 James Beard Foundation Media Award nominee, 2022 Folio Editorial Director of the Year Award, 3 2023 National Native Media Awards, and most recently 2024 NCAIED, which for those who don't know, is the National Center for American Indian Enterprise Development. She is a part of the class of Native American 40 Under 40 Award. Kate, you are so incredibly impressive. You have done so much in this space. Thank you for coming on Excuse My Rage. Well, and thank you. This was like a great little pep talk. I mean, we can just be done now because, you know, I feel like... Um, no, I, I appreciate that. And I agree with that, that sometimes we're so busy in the doing, which is really, you know, what so much of this work is about, that sometimes we forget to step back and look at what have we accomplished and how have we been recognized. And especially for women, I think there's such a tendency to really demure when people talk about what you've achieved we don't necessarily know how to respond to it. And so I think people, you know, again, tend to say, oh, it, it took a team, which it does. It takes a village to make all this happen, but also it's okay, even though, you know, it feels a little uncomfortable to hear someone <laughs> list off all the accolades and just sit with it. But that's what I think, you know, I would love to see more and more women and just people in general getting more comfortable with. But this is why, too, I love to introduce people as opposed to necessarily having somebody have to introduce themselves. Because for me, I think it's my job here to hype you up. Because if people don't know you, they should know you. Official and these are hype things, woman right here. Exactly. Official hype woman. And for just some background for everybody, how me and Kate know each other, I had the insane privilege to work under her. I was at Artful Living magazine. I interned there. I came back some summers to do some editorial contribution. It was such a great environment to kind of get my toes wet in this space at all. And the team there is so small but mighty. I just wanted to be a part of anything that everybody was doing there. So I'm excited to learn more from you here because a while back, a couple years ago, I remember I reached out to you just to kind of have a coffee chat and ask you about some career advice, any you know, anything that you would tell me if you were in my shoes at that time and you just had so much wisdom to share from a coffee chat. And I was like, for, for people that don't have you as, as close of a resource, I want to be able to give you a platform to be able to share your story here and how hopefully I can learn more from you, others can learn more from you. So I want to start at the beginning, actually, very, very beginning, when you were a kid. Okay, can you just like take us back all the way there about what you were like, some early influences that you had, and if little Kate would be surprised as to where you are now. For sure. Okay, so let's go back. I grew up in northern Minnesota. I was born in Ketchikan, Alaska, but all of my upbringing has been here in Minnesota. Grew up in a small farming community pre-internet. I mean, it, it Eventually we got internet, but it was still the dial-up age. You know, it wasn't like social media now where we have these computers in our pockets with us all the time. And so magazines and books were really how I connected to the world. So I, from a very young age, knew that I wanted to be a writer. I actually had a newspaper. It was called the Nelson News. And so it was just for literally our family, our household. 
And, you know, I would gather information from my mom, my dad, my sister. Um, I, I remember one time my parents thought this was comical. I did not because my goldfish had died and I wrote an obituary for him. Oh my gosh. And I Kate. said that I flushed him to his watery grave or something like that. It was very dramatic. Right, poetic. And I'm sure that I I'm sure I read it aloud to honor my goldfish. And my parents laughed. I remember thinking, you just do not have a respect for journalism. So I knew from a, a reading and, and writing for me were just so um, formative and integral to my childhood experience. And so I knew that this is what I wanted to do. I know that not everyone's quite so laser focused. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you fast forward to, I went to the um, University of Minnesota, went to the J school there. And even then it was sort of the first wave of everyone being really rattled and concerned about what digital, you know, the internet was going to do to the print industry. Um, and of course, this is, that was in, I graduated in 2007. Mm -hmm. So this is much later than that. Turns out print is not dead. You know, definitely media organizations have had to adapt and right. evolve since that time. So I got out of um, journalism school and I had done sort of all the right things. I had gotten a number of internships. I had, I graduated with honors. I really went above and beyond. And when I got out of school, there were no jobs. So I actually went into public relations, which at the time sort of felt like stratcom, felt like the antithesis of journalism. But I was just happy to have a job. And it was, you know, I was referred to that company, Lola Red PR, by um, a, a style editor who I really trusted. And I learned so much. And, you know, again, I was hoping to, I, I had grown up reading, you know, all of these really important stories in Glamour Magazine and Marie Claire about these women doing important things in foreign countries and humanitarian efforts and things like that. And I thought, but what can I learn from PR? And again, I learned so much about how to adult how to run a business, um, and really how to brand, you know, all of these companies and clients that we worked for. But also, this was early on when there was this idea of like, what's your personal brand? So I, you know, again, I give a lot of, I do a lot of informational interviews with mm -hmm. journalism students, and they're like, how did you get where you are? <laughs> I took this super winding path um, and so, you know, from public relations, then I actually went into the nonprofit world. I am a horse girl at heart. And oh, so I started working for a therapeutic riding group here in the Twin Cities called We Can Ride, then went on to help um, found and over, I, I didn't found it. I helped oversee a nonprofit called This Old Horse, which is a retirement organization for um, previously working horses. And I didn't really know necessarily how I'd gotten there, but I just sort of like followed my heart through each step. 
And I remember when I went into the nonprofit world, I had left the PR world, which was obviously, which you can assume was more lucrative than the nonprofit world. But I knew that I needed to sort of get back to some, you know, my, my roots and sort of that, that little girl in me. And I wasn't really sure how I was going to make ends meet. I figured something, you know, would, I'd, I'd make sense of it. And the same week that I was leaving the PR world, going into the nonprofit space, I um, had a lunch sit down with one of my, you know, previous mentors who was actually had been doing a bunch of freelancing and then was going in-house for one of her clients. So she, I, I remember it distinctly. She literally said to me, so I need someone to tell these clients to, to go to, cause they still have needs to be met. Can I suggest that they go to you? And that for me was really sort of a, a sign from the universe that this was where I was supposed to be. Because again, I wasn't sure I was, how I was going to make ends meet. Then this was dumped in my lap. Um, one of those clients was Art for Living. Oh, wow. So, you know, way, way back in the day, again, it felt like looking back now that it was sort of predestined. And so I started working with Artful Living in 2010. And so I've been there for more than 13 years, moving up the the ranks. I started as copy editor, then became executive editor, and now I've been editor in chief for five years. But again, if my story proves anything, it's that even if you you wander, you come back to yourself and not to be afraid of of the wandering, right? That's where we learn about the world and where we learn about ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's such an incredible journey. And it's kind of a testament to how you can adapt, right? It's like you think that you're going one way, you think that it's going to be a linear path. And from what I've learned, even from just doing many of these interviews now is that almost nobody's path ends up being linear. So it's kind of figuring out what you're going to do with the cards that you're dealt in that moment. I am interested because you did bring up the fact that one profession was far more lucrative than another. And I think at that age specifically, you're coming out of school, you kind of have this expectation of maybe what a four-year degree is supposed to bring to you. Was it very hard for you to kind of take that leap and say to yourself, okay, even though I may be giving up a bigger paycheck here, I know that this isn't the direction that I need to stick in and my passion is calling me somewhere else. So maybe I should go over there. Yeah, I definitely felt pulled, you know, toward my passion. But then there was this part of my brain that was like, reminder, you have you have bills to pay. Should we think about that? And I remember thinking in that moment, because again, PR is a is a really lucrative industry. I remember thinking, if I don't walk away now when my passion is calling to me, it, it will be so much harder to walk away in two, five, ten years. Because then, you know, if you, you think about like the salary I would have been making at that point, you know, that would have grown exponentially. And so then I I probably I saw myself prioritizing that over 
my passion. And now, you know, looking back, I remember I, I took this all. So, so we take ourselves really seriously all the time. Of course. I by no means think I have everything figured out now. I'm sure fast forward 10, 15 years from now, I will just think it's comical that I mm-hmm. thought I had any of my shit together. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if we can swear. You can but swear. I did. <laughs> and looking back, you know, this was in my early 20s. And I was already like, well, but what about, you know, I'm building this career in PR. And what about what's my future earning potential? And those are all important things to think about. However, if you're solely focused on that, that's how I think people end up in in jobs and in industries where they're ultimately not meant to be. And again, I so value the time that I spend in PR, so I don't want to by any means dismiss that, but it just ultimately wasn't wasn't the space that I was meant to stay in. Right. That makes a lot of sense. I want to bring it back a little bit too to the education portion of this. I know that you went into school, you already knew that you wanted to do journalism. I did take a peek at your LinkedIn. I saw that you also have certifications from UCLA and Yale, correct? Yes. And I wanted to kind of know, well, first, I'd love for you to speak on those a little bit, your decision to do a bit more education past your four-year degree, but also if you felt that doing those were integral to helping in your professional success. Yeah, so what I love about journalism is that it's, ongoing learning, you know, with every new article I'm writing or subject I'm delving into, you're sort of becoming a subject matter expert on that on that topic. So if we go back to when I was in the at the J school at the University of Minnesota, and it just happens to be this moment in time, there were not any classes dedicated to digital journalism. There were classes about how to use the internet and how, you know, but there wasn't anything about we, there was this sort of worry about the digital revolution, but not yet any training around it. And I think that's because, you know, you, you look back and there's this period where print was still viewed as so prestigious compared to digital. And I think the idea was, well, this is maybe a a passing idea. There's no way that digital could ever be as important as print. And now obviously we we see how important it is. So I got out of school and even though obviously I'm pretty handy around a computer and the internet, you know, I definitely felt a hole in my skills at one point around, you know, digital journalism. And then, you know, at at Art for Living, I was moving into a leadership role and I realized that I also had not necessarily learned much about management and particularly how to manage in this ever evolving field of media. So I wholeheartedly advocate for ongoing learning. Now, that doesn't have to be something that's formal. Mm-hmm. It's really cool. I joke. So I did this, you know, this course at Yale. And so I joke that now I'm a Yale alum. <laughs> but, I would too. <laughs> but. Um, it can be really informal. It can be, you know, asking someone to be your mentor. It can be listening in. I've learned so much from um, 
listening in on seminars. You know, I think that is one one positive that came out of the pandemic is that there's a lot more access made available to some of these courses or talks that used to be in person. So unless you were at, let's say, Harvard to hear it, you would never have access to that information. So I totally support ongoing learning. However, I don't think it always has to be formalized. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point. And another reason why podcasts are so great too, it's like you can hear from people that maybe you wouldn't originally have access to. I'm interested to know, do you have any mentors that you look up to? Are there specific people that you're always kind of checking in with and asking like for some career advice yourself? So it's interesting that you asked that because I, for a very long time, felt uh, a lack of a mentor. And not because I had unanswered questions necessarily, but because I really thought like, this is what you're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there, there are definitely lots of people that I have learned from. And I would say that now, you know, some of my, my closest friends are essentially my mentors. So I never had a, a formal relationship where it was, you know, I could go to this person with a very specific career question and they were going to be able to give me advice. It was really some of my my past managers who obviously were mentoring me when I was working for them um, or I worked with a, I've worked with a great business and life coach named Yasna Burza who is now a good friend of mine. And so what's cool is that that, you know, started out as a more formal relationship. And then we just realized that we really enjoy each other's company. So <laughs> you're like, we, we're actually friends. <laughs> yeah. So it turns out um, we like to spend time together. But then there still are, you know, I, I would say that I have people who have been able to see me more clearly than maybe I've been able to see myself. Hmm. And and that to me is really key. Um, and not that again, not that I'm like against formal education or formalized mentor partnerships, relationships. But I think I I thought that was something that I so needed. And now looking back, if I had like looked around, I had a really great support system, and I didn't necessarily need that one person to be my my guiding light. Yeah, that's so interesting that you say that because I think that is helpful for people to hear too, that if they don't have one right now, look at the people around you, look at the friends that support you heavily, people that are always cheering you on. I think that's a really good way to turn to people in need or if you just have any general questions or reach out to community that you've worked with in the past. I think that's also a helpful way to get information. I'm curious, the transition that you talk about to getting into Artful Living, the ground floor. What was that actually like? How did that work so that you didn't, I guess, burn bridges with the company that you were leaving in order to go into Artful Living? Just walk us through that. Yeah. So, and I should add, when I got out of journalism school, and when I say that there were no jobs, for me at that time, freelancing was not even, I obviously was aware of it, but in my mind at that time, it was just not an option. I thought it wasn't stable enough. It didn't have benefits. Where would I go to an office? You know, I think at that point, we were still really stuck in a very traditional understanding of employment. 
And I just thought that's not, I'm not built for that. So fast forward to, I'm working for a nonprofit. I'm, I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I'm working with horses for a living, which I loved, but again, not, not particularly lucrative. And then I'm freelancing. And so really those were, you know, when I was a little girl, I wanted to be riding and I wanted to be writing. And so I'd sort of melded those together. And, you know, so I, I never, freelancing people think about this, this idea of feast or famine. I never experienced the famine part of that. You know, again, I was very lucky to have had someone who recommended their clients to me, which I'm pretty sure nearly all of them did, did come to me. And then they recommended other people. And pretty soon I was in a position where I was able to actually be picking the work that I wanted to be doing. That's amazing. Um, and I was doing at that point a lot more editing. I was doing a little bit of writing, but a lot more editing. And then I started to feel pulled. You know, I looking back, I keep coming up to these situations where I just keep adding more and more to my plate <laughs> and eventually realizing that that doesn't really work in terms of existing and, you know, taking care of yourself and maintaining relationships and enjoying life. So I found myself again, sort of at this, this crossroads of, okay, what do I do? Um, and my work for some of my clients was really building. So with Art for a Living, it had started out as a, a very, you know, sporadic copy editing contract. And it just sort of built and built and built. And I found that I was really gravitating toward that work. And so, again, I could see the writing on the wall. But also, I was in this really lovely chapter where I was working with this nonprofit. And I thought how, I mean, looking back at that time, really what was running through my head was how selfish am I to leave, leave a place where I'm doing good hmm. to pursue something that is feeling like it's pulling me in that direction, you know, which is, is not a fair setup. It's sort right. of lose-lose, but, but I had those, those thoughts running through my head for sure. And I think we grapple with a lot of that when we look at our our work. So am I feeling fulfilled personally? Am I contributing to some greater good? Am I somehow also getting paid while doing these things? Am I able to maintain some work-life balance? You know, so these to me are, are ideas that come up for all of us, no matter what stage of, the, uh, of our career that we're in. So I, I made the, the leap. And what's interesting, when I... When I went to tell my boss at the sold horse that I was going to be um, working working with Artful Living and focusing on that, we sat down for lunch. I was so nervous. We we had gone to lunch all the time, so this wasn't mm -hmm. unusual. But we sat down for lunch, and she reached out across the table, and she grabbed my hands, and she said, "I know." Mm. And I was like, "Wait, what? What do you know?" And she said. I know that it's time for you to move on and that's totally fine. And that's exactly what you need to do. And I'm pretty sure we cried over our salads because clearly, again, this idea of 
you know, having people around you who see yourself more clearly than maybe you do, that she had probably seen me having this internal struggle um, and, and recognized that before I even did. So, you know, she was just so, so gracious with that. And I think that even with, you know, I've had lots of different freelance client relationships, things like that. And I would say, even if you end up in a situation where let's say you're in a workplace that you can tell it's not the right fit, or let's say you're working with a freelance client that again, it's not going to work out. Do your best to have things end in a really positive way. If it can't be positive, at least have it be civil. Uh, in part, I think like that's you. You never know. These some of these industries are really small. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's the idea of again, you, this might be a relationship that you come back to in the future. But I also think there's something about you know the karma that you put out there of, of honoring these different chapters, even if you know that, you know, a book can't be just one chapter, that would be a very long chapter. So knowing that there are going to be these different parts of your life, and that means that certain chapters have to end for other ones to begin. 100%. And I love that that was the experience that you had, because I think it's definitely I mean, sometimes a unique one, but I think that the kind of karma that you're talking about is very real. There will be people that work at a company for years and years and years, and you see that in the last week of work, it's like everything just is falling apart. Like relationships are ending, things are not being left on good terms. And I always think about that, and I just think, what a shame. What a shame that these are the people that you have worked with day in, day out. Your coworkers, the people that you work with on the day to day, they see you all the time. They speak with you all the time. Mm-hmm. It, it really is just a shame to leave a workplace like that. And I know not everybody's situation is the same. Sometimes ties have to be cut very strictly. But I think that's incredible that you were able to end it like that. Is this something that you have been going back to that you still participate in some way? Do you still maintain a relationship? Oh, yeah with them yeah yes so um her name is nancy who's the the founder of this old horse and she actually had been one of my volunteers at we can ride which had inspired her to start this nonprofit. and so you know again how we talk about that circuitous route that i took all of a sudden you start to see this through line and you think i'm I guess maybe this is how it was supposed to be. And so, yes, she and I stay in touch and I support the sold horse, you know, at any opportunity that I get. And it's really, I've, I've watched them just blossom into this nationally recognized organization, you know, and, and I think back to the days where I was really in at the, the early stages when we were just trying to figure out what we were doing and, and how to really support our mission. So, so yeah, I think that it's not just, you know, trying to stay on sort of the, the right side of the karmic universe, but also knowing that, just like you said, these relationships still matter. You're, you're not going to stay best friends with all of your coworkers from all of your different workplaces, right. but to know that like you said, those, those moments, those, those memories are really real. And, you know, you shared these really highs, maybe you shared low moments. Um, 
So, so to not dismiss that. Absolutely. Okay, so I want to get into Artful Living because there is such a journey there, right? You said you started there in 2010. That's when you started there formally or that's when you were kind of doing more copy editor work here and there for them? That's when I started really at that, um, on more of that freelancer basis. Okay, amazing. So then at what point did you go on Artful Living full-time? So I basically... it. I had a unique path with them as well because I stayed on as a freelancer beyond essentially at some point it was like, Oh, I probably should be an employee, (laughs) but we had just sort of maintained the, the agreement that we had. Um, and, and then I think it was in 2015 that I became executive editor. Um, because at that point it had gone from, you know, I was just editing the copy to, I was helping shape the content direction and even then, you know, looking at the layouts and making sure that everything felt really, really high end and really dynamic. And so then again, we sort of looked at it and said, oh, I guess this is, I guess we're already here. Should we recognize that that's where we're at? Right. Okay. So you move up in the ladder, so to speak, at Artful Living, you eventually get the top job, okay, editor-in-chief. And I think that role in and of itself is something that people may come to find this interview and think that is the job that I want. I want to eventually be the editor-in-chief of a publication. I want to know the ins and outs of that job. I know that every day is not at all the same. But if there were just some high level things that you could say that you think would be important for people to know about this role and what it really entails, let us know what those things are. Yeah, so I, I wouldn't have necessarily, I guess as a kid, as a teenager, I was aware of that the editor in chief was at the top of the masthead, because I knew the names of some of the editors in chief of national magazines. So, but I had already been an editor in chief of Nelson News. There was True. only there was only one employee, but but you were the editor in chief. I could put myself wherever I wanted on that masthead. Um and so, you know, very much so moving up to executive editor and then to editor in chief was exactly where I hoped that my career would go. What I think that people don't tell you, and this is in in every industry, but particularly in creative industries, is that as you move up to these these more overarching positions, sometimes you move away from the product that you're creating. So for instance, if you are, if you love the writing process, and you love telling stories, you might not love being a high-level editor because you spend less and less time telling those stories. You're, you're helping curate them. You're helping shape them. But you're, you're farther away from that, that one story or product because you're thinking about the full issue, you're thinking about, you know, the upcoming issues, the overall strategy. So that I think can be surprising for some people. And, you know, I'd mentioned that all of a sudden I found myself 
sort of in this management role. And I thought, well, I know how to edit and I know how to curate content, but that doesn't necessarily make me a great manager. Um, so that, that Yale course that was about, you know, leadership in, in the media industry was super informative. I didn't take any business classes in, in college. Cause again, I was very much, I'm, I'm going into journalism. I don't know why I would take a business class. <laughs> and so there were some very basic leadership just principles that were mind blowing to me about, you know, how do you work with your team in a way that, you know, pulls out their best skills and makes them feel really valued and respected. And hopefully that in the day makes their role feel really rewarding. Cause ultimately, you know, your, your success as you move up, the, the ladder in media or any other industry, you know, when you're, when you're writing, let's go back to the idea of being a writer and writing one story. You can see the success of, I, I wrote that story. It was well-rounded. It was well-received. My success is really in me and maybe in, you know, my sources and my editors. As you move up, your success has so much more to do with everyone around you. That mm -hmm. might be your peers, that might be people that you manage, but their success becomes integral to yours. And so you can't just be like, well, I'm going to focus on the content strategy. Um, and, you know, good luck to my team because, because your team, it, it, those are the people who are actually helping you you know, right. be successful in executing that. So that to me is one thing that I don't think people really say out loud, that sometimes you end up moving away from, from the work that brought you there in the first place. I think it's so admirable that you're even saying to us now that you didn't necessarily have the skills coming into it to manage and that you then went and like sought out a course to do more management skills and because I truly believe in so many industries, unfortunately, the ladder up, the next step up is a managerial role. And like you're saying, it may very well not have anything to do necessarily with the work that you did before. You're now just managing people. It, ha it may have to do with the work that you did before, but primarily you're managing those below you to do that same work that you used to be doing, which is a completely different role that I think a lot of people are either not suited for or just don't have the tools necessarily mm -hmm. in order to do it well and effectively for your team. Do you feel like that was the main part where you stepped out of your comfort zone for this role? Or did you feel like there was a different element maybe within this top job that you felt like I'm out of my comfort zone here? Yeah, it wasn't necessarily out of my comfort zone. But again, it was the idea of it wasn't what I expected. So I, growing up and then throughout college, I just really wanted to prove myself. And I sort of wanted to be part of the, the group that was making decisions. You know, that to me, I think meant that I had made it. And as you move into those roles where you are part of, you know, those decision makers, 
so usually if decisions couldn't be made at let's say a lower level by by you know your your team by the time that they rise to you it's because they're hard to figure out so as much as, you know, you sort of think of, you know, oh, it'll feel so important. I will be doing all of these incredible things, making decisions left and right. Usually it's really complicated and there is no perfect decision. There are different degrees of, of right or what will work and where do we have to make compromises um, and, and that to me, again, as you in any field rise to the top, you start to, to manage more people like we talked about, and you start to make decisions that if they could have been easily resolved by someone else, they would have been. So usually they're, they're sort of tricky, sticky situations. That makes a lot of sense. So those are maybe some of the less glamorous parts of the job. What would you say is one of the most glamorous parts of the job? Yeah. And, and I don't know about glamorous, but for me, the most enjoyable part still to this day is, you know, when we brainstorm for an upcoming issue and we have this nugget of an idea, it, it might be in, obviously it goes through lots of stages where it becomes mm-hmm. more than a nugget, but it starts out as just this, this idea of, well, what if we told a story about this and that eventually, you know, three, six months later, that's a real story that's out in the world. Um, and with Ed Art for Living, we rely on a lot of really talented freelance writers to help create our content. And so they might be bringing the idea to us, we might be bringing the idea to them. And then we sort of collaborate on what does this look like? You send it off with them and you had, there's a lot of trust. You know, you send it off with them. If if you want to be a helicopter, you know, parent manager to this content, um, it's not going to work because you have to rely on so many people who are bringing their own lens and expertise. And it's from from start to finish, it doesn't necessarily look how exactly how you thought it would, but that's one of the really interesting parts. And that if, if every single story, you know, that has appeared in Art for Living in the time that I've worked there was solely through just my lens, after a while, I think that would get pretty darn boring. And so (laughs) I love being able to see, you know, these unexpected directions or angles that, that writers take stories in, and then to see it brought to life with really incredible imagery or artwork. And, you know, I am still really a sucker for print. I love it. I have a ridiculous amount of magazine subscriptions. And, and, but I, I just, I love to feel it in my hands. I love to be able to see how, you know, the imagery actually printed onto the paper. And so it's, it's pretty cool to think that, you know, something that was like maybe an inkling of an idea eventually became this story that's out there in the world. Yeah, I am so on board with you loving print as much as you do. It's the same kind of thing. I just I have way too many subscriptions 
but I love them all. There is nothing like a Saturday morning where I just take time for myself. I make my coffee. I sit in my chair and I read my magazines. There's just like no other happier place to me than that. So I totally get it. And like I said, the work that you guys do at Artful Living, it is so beautifully curated. Like it just, it not only has really compelling stories in the pages, but it's also gorgeous. It's gorgeous to look at. That is a magazine that I could never get rid of once I have it. You know what I mean? And that makes for a great magazine, in my opinion. Well, and that's testimonial. I might I might ask you for that testimonial later, but that's exactly <laughs> what we're, you know, it's a uh, glossy, oversized publication. And our hope is that it's going to sit around on people's coffee tables because it is big, it is weighty, it is beautiful. So again, that's our hope that people, because unfortunately, we go through just how interconnected our world is now. We take in a massive amount of information all the time. And a lot of that sort of gets thrown away, whether that's literal or, or fig, you know, figurative. But to have something that, that people hesitate and say, well, I don't want to put this in the recycling bin, no. you know, so yeah, appreciate that feedback. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's true for me at least. But I want to talk about now this shift because you are moving, you're taking a step back as editor-in-chief come early March, and you're moving into this editor-at-large role. And first and foremost, I kind of want to know, what is the difference for somebody that's hearing that in editor-in-chief versus an editor-at-large, what capacity are you still going to be involved there? Yeah, and this this could vary greatly depending on organizations, but an editor-in-chief generally is responsible for overseeing the full content strategy seeing overseeing the the editorial process again like i mentioned from start to finish obviously with the team but that that they're you know making a lot of those high level decisions um and and very intimately involved in all of those different steps throughout the process to bring that to fruition editor at large is this in a way it's sort of a catch-all term. I remember at one point, I think Gail King was editor-at-large on Oprah's Magazine, mm. which who the hell knows what that meant. <laughs> um, but I think part of part of that, so sometimes it can be something where it means, you know, this is someone who is sort of a trusted advisor, who might be contributing every now and then. And that can range all the way up to, you know, in, in, my situation, the idea is it, it's really hard to think about, you know, walking away from this brand that I helped build and that I have a lot of that, in, a lot of that institutional knowledge mm. that is really hard to, to pass on. And so the idea is that I'm going to stay involved at a higher level, really strategic role so less involved with that day-to-day execution and some of the tactical side of things, but more, where are we trying to go? How are we going to get there? And obviously, you know, given how long I've been with the company and that I've been in the editor-in-chief role for five years, I also want to make sure that the incoming editor-in-chief is set up for success 
with, you know, really good support. So I think there will be a, a longer transition period. Um, but but then editor at large is sort of a, a nebulous and a little evolving yeah. probably title. And I'm I'm excited to see where that goes. I love it. I, I love that you're still going to be involved in that high capacity because, I mean, it, it is interesting to even see like from when I started there, just again as a measly little intern, to just now watching it like throughout my career, there have been substantial changes like as you have been editor-in-chief. And it's just, it's really cool to see in the pages within media. So I'm glad that you're still going to be on a little selfishly if I'm being honest. (laughs) But now I do want to get into something that I think is maybe one of the most important things is that the why behind this shift. And I mean, there's so many things that I want to talk about within this. But first and foremost, why did you make this shift into the editor-at-large role, stepping back from editor-in-chief? What work are you focusing on Tell us about all of it. Yeah, so I'm going to be focusing more on my work amplifying native change makers and topics. And I want to give a little bit of background to how I got there. So I'm, like you said, I'm Alaska Native, I'm Quinket. I didn't know about my Quinket heritage until I was in my late 20s. That was, I actually, I wrote a Guardian essay about it, which was super vulnerable. I'm really happy. Now I feel great about it being out into the world, but I remember thinking, what what am I doing putting all of this out there? Um, and that was really like life shifting and really identity crushing at, at first. I had no idea what to do with that information. And I I felt really, it felt, you can hear me even just trying to find the words around how to describe it, that it was debilitating in a lot of ways. And I thought, am I not the person who I thought that I was up until this point? Because this is, again, you look back to, I grew up knowing that I wanted to, be a writer, that I wanted to work for a lifestyle magazine. And then all of a sudden, you know, I have such a, a lack of certainty in who I am. So that was something that I needed to work on personally. And that's been an ongoing journey. So how I started focusing on Native American topics was in, in 2020. And I can't remember if you were if you would have been back here in Minneapolis in 2020. There were so many different points. I was yes. like, I'm pretty sure in 2019 <laughs> is when I think maybe 2020, I started doing a little bit of work for you guys Okay. after I had just done work previously for you guys. There was a shift in it, but yeah, yes. okay. 2020 is where we're at. Okay. So it's, it's 2020. There's a global pandemic happening. And, you know, like I mentioned in here in Minneapolis, um, we had a front row seat to the racial reckoning that that rippled out after George Floyd was killed. And I think because of everything that was going on in the world at that time, a lot of people were questioning, you know, what am I doing and and why? And I remember thinking, how can I best use my my time, 
my talents. And so it started off pretty small. Sean Sherman, who's Oglala Lakota, who's a very notable Native American chef, was opening the restaurant Awamni um, that opened in 2021. And so I thought, I want to write about this. I pitched the story to Esquire. I mean, I, this goes back to my PR days of just having to sort of hunt down and find editors. I didn't have any connections at Esquire and I found the right editor. I pitched it to them. They accepted it. And I thought, is, is this how easy it is to <laughs> work with these really prestigious national magazines? I had a really positive experience um, working with their team there in shaping that story. And it was really about, you know, the, the courage behind opening, you know, what was at that point the first full service native focused restaurant during a global pandemic and really bringing forward this idea of decolonized food, meaning it's not utilizing Eurocentric ingredients. And, you know, Sean was really on the the forefront of the Native American renaissance and awakening that we're seeing right now. So it started with one story and that, and then I thought, well, heck, I'm going to nominate the story for the James Beard Awards. And I ended up being one of the, the finalists. And again, I thought, is this how this works? Um, but I, I didn't end up winning, um, which honestly, looking back now, I wouldn't have been ready for what that maybe would have meant for my career at that time. But I realized that I really wanted to keep telling those stories. So I just found, you know, now we're into um, 2022, I went from writing one story in 2021 to maybe in 2022, I wrote six or something like that. And I, I got these really dream bylines. So I wrote for Elle and I wrote for Teen Vogue and I wrote for Architectural Digest. And, you know, and it was just sort of like, oh, okay, this is, this is rewarding. Then here comes 2023. I, I, it wasn't until the end of the year I looked back and I'm pretty sure that I wrote close to all, all when all said and done close to one story a week, amplifying Native American, again, you know, change makers or topics. Wow. And part of that was that I was starting to make a lot of these connections. I found I was getting a lot of inbound requests from editors who had said, you know, I admire your work in this publication, would you write for us? I also had a lot of indigenous organizations or individuals reaching out to me saying, we have this upcoming news, can you help us get the word out? So now I found myself in this familiar situation where my, my plate is piled really, really high. And I kept thinking last year, looking back, I kept thinking, it's going to, it's going to calm down. It for sure is going to calm down. And then basically an entire year went by. The work was so rewarding, but I don't feel like I was able to probably fully, 
I, I wasn't able to be present because mm-hmm. I just had had so much that was going on. And really, I was sacrificing personally, you know, like not being a great friend, not being a great partner, not nurturing some of not not being great to myself, mm-hmm. not nurturing these things that are so important to be able to do this work. But again, I found it so rewarding and so fulfilling. And then I found myself being being pulled there. And I realized I couldn't it as much as I wanted to. I couldn't keep holding all the things I was holding. And then I had to be really honest about, again, going back to some of those questions that I'd mentioned, you know, are you doing work that's fulfilling to you? Are you, cre- you know, contributing to some greater good? And this to me really feels like it's my, my life's work and what I was, was meant to do, which is so exciting. On the other side of that, then it, it made me realize that I was going to have to step away from what has long been my dream job, you know, to be the editor in chief of a a beautiful lifestyle magazine. And, and that was really tough. Mm. It was really tough to, to think about stepping away again from this organization that I've spent so much time with. Also, there's a, like you mentioned, you know, it's a very, it's, it's a flashy title. Yeah. It, it's what people strive for. And I thought, am I really giving that up? Um, I remember at one point, in, once I had become editor-in-chief, I remember thinking, I will never, unless I leave journalism, I only want to be at this title from this point on, which again was a naive thought. But, you know, that's what I think we we sort of get seduced by some of Mm. those things um and you know people really associate me with artful living and with that title so then i thought but if i'm not that then then who am i and so there have been many different stages of of thinking on this to arrive at this decision it wasn't easy however once i'd made the decision I just had so much clarity around where I'm supposed to go and how I'm supposed to be spending my my time and my skills. That's such a journey mentally, I'm sure, that you went through there. Once you feel like you've gotten a title or you've gotten accolades in the position that you're currently at, it's like, why would I leave this ideal role? But that crossroads that you faced for the second time in your life, right? When you were going to Artful Living and then now leaving Artful Living, it's so poignant because it's two different stages in your life. And in one point you thought this was it. Like this is my career trajectory that's going to be my forever career. And now you've come into this position where you're like, no, this is my calling. And how beautiful is it that you've been able to have multiple points in your life where you have felt like you are at your calling. I just think that that's, it's so incredible to be able to see as an outsider just viewing your story from afar. But I don't know, it's really inspirational because I think, again, we talked about that linear path and seeing like, okay, there is just one way to go. And no matter what, if you take a left turn, you're going to be staying left your whole life. And if you take a right Mm -hmm. turn, you're going to be staying right your whole life. But you're a great example that that's not the case. Like you can go zigzag. It doesn't have to be straightforward. Well, and... 
one one thing does not negate the other. So I remember right. also another thing that I grappled and, and sort of continue to grapple with because I'm in the midst of it is this idea of, okay, this is sort of my my new dream. That doesn't mean that artful living was not my dream. Right. You know, and so it's this idea, it's, it's unfair to ourselves to think that we'll be the exact same person in the exact same position through so many different, you know, seasons of life. So let's allow ourselves to continue to evolve, but also to honor, again, where we've been. And so when I, when I made that decision, again, I felt this sense of clarity. And, and pretty much since then, I've also felt this huge wave, so many emotions, but one of the emotions is grief, mm-hmm. you know, of the idea of even though I'm choosing to do this, to be stepping away from something that has been my, my home for, for such a long time. And to know yeah. that I will not be as closely involved in all these things that I have been to date and that, you know, what things, things that have become so routine and comfortable won't necessarily be, you know, ongoing for me. And so, so that's been really interesting. I'm just trying to let those feelings come up and sort of recognize them and honor them. Um, but it's been, it's been a lot. And especially to be in this, in this period of transition, um, that sometimes you just, you gotta allow yourself to be in the messy middle, even though it doesn't feel great. 100%. Do you feel like even though that now you've built such a community in the space and that you have contacts, you get freelance work, it's kind of been a full ride for you that has been pretty, I'm assuming, lucrative in certain ways. Do you ever fear the instability of freelance now? Or are you kind of over that hump of it? I I don't. And in a way that I, again, I think I've learned a lot about myself. I, I thought that I absolutely needed to have that, that stability, which is why early on I wouldn't have even considered freelance. And then it convinced me, you know, that that you can again make a make a decent living but now i just feel so solid in this decision and i trust in it and I, and i do have if i had like one freelance client it would be really hard to say well this is my passion i'm going to go for it and i have one client who's going to pay me $400 a month i'm not i'm not in that situation because i do have a pretty solid base However, I am not worried about the financial aspect of it and not because I've, you know, done the budgeting and it's like, okay, well, I know this will all work out. I just have so much trust with where I'm headed Mm. and that this is the work that I need to be doing that, you know, go back to that, that moment when I decided to go into the nonprofit sector and I had, again, a, a former colleague hand me all of her freelance clients. I just really trust that this is where I'm supposed to be and that the universe is going to help me do that. Yeah. I mean, I love the assurance that you have in it. And 
I'm also very interested because, of course, I've read many of your beautiful words, and I feel like a lot of a through line in it is that so many people speak on what they really cherish is being able to tell their stories through people that understand their stories, right? Mm -hmm. So was there a point in this too that you felt almost a responsibility that because you are a part of this community, you should be the one to be lifting up others within that same community? Totally. And and I think, you know, so remember that I didn't learn about my Alaska Native heritage until in my late 20s. And so there is a lot of imposter syndrome that comes with that because I do not have the same lived experience as, you know, so first of all, indigenous cultures are not a monolith, right? There are so many different experiences, but I, I don't have the lived experience that maybe people stereotypically think of, you know, Mm -hmm. there are, there are Native Americans in every single part of this country. There are Indigenous peoples in every, every place on this globe that live in, you know, some of them might be on their ancestral homelands, they might be on reservations, they might be in cities. And so I honestly, in the early days, was still really grappling with that imposter syndrome. And I was questioning if I had a right to tell those stories. And I I found that people, a lot of the sources that I was working with felt such a huge sense of trust in me, because they knew that I was Native. And therefore, they felt, you know, more comfortable that I was going to tell their story. And, And then I think once you start to see these stories out in the world, you know, there, there is, unfortunately, with Native communities, and I'm guessing lots of marginalized groups, there's a, a distrust of the media because, you know, our stories haven't always been told in a way that authentically represents us. Right. And so I, I think that my portfolio started to speak for itself. And, and then every once in a while, the imposter syndrome still does pop up. But then it really did shift from this idea of do I have a right to be telling these stories? Okay, I think I do to what you mentioned. Actually, I feel like I have a responsibility to tell these stories because again, a lot of these sources feel so much more comfortable talking with someone who, you know, is native. And even if I can't relate to the exact scenario they're describing, they know that I'm going to handle it with, you know, more, as much care and integrity as I possibly can and will have a different lens than someone who is non-native. And I found too that editors have been across the board, super respectful, you know, and, and when I make maybe notes of, we need to use this language exactly like this, this is really important, that that people are extremely responsive and respectful of that. That's so important. I mean, another huge importance in the work that you do, obviously, is the research component. And I'm wondering, specifically, you just did a piece for Atmos, right, Inside the Fight for Indigenous Data Sovereignty. And I read that piece, and there were so many great pieces of information from experts in it, so many great quotes that you got. Like, the research element of it was not lost on me at all. So I'm kind of just wondering about that process. What is your research process for somebody that maybe is looking to do what you do? 
and kind of just wants to know, how does Kate go about researching for these stories? Yeah, well, I think that goes back to, you know, I'd mentioned that journalism is like lifelong learning. So part of it is trying to delve into the the topic. What I've found in particular with some of these these indigenous subjects and, and topics is that there isn't necessarily a lot of coverage, existing coverage out there, which is exciting on one hand, because you're telling a story that hasn't yet been told in a really in-depth way. Also, you know, again, feeling this deep sense of responsibility to get it right, you sort of have to, sometimes I find myself really scouring to make sure that the information that I'm, I'm getting is, you know, super reliable. What, what's interesting is that there's a ton of, and it's in, that you bring up the, the article that's about data sovereignty, because that's really about, you know, Native peoples have long been subjected to non-Native people gathering information about them mm-hmm. with or without their consent, with or without their participation. And really this idea of all of that information belongs to, you know, these, these people in these communities. But because there's been so much research that's been done, there is a lot of statistical information, whether that is totally accurate or not, just based on, you know, now we know that sometimes those collection tactics aren't always um, the, the most rigorous. But there, there are lots of statistics to show, again, some of the, some of the really hard-hitting issues like high rates of poverty and addiction and suicide and violence. You know, that's one thing that in almost every story that I write, because you never know. The I, I really take the approach of I, I want to present these topics in a way that readers can understand them and to make them as approachable and digestible as possible not to sugarcoat anything, mm. but also to, in some ways, meet readers where they are. So I can't make assumptions that someone knows that, you know, indigenous communities across the United States and even beyond face these these types of statistical, you know, inequities. So that's something that I put in nearly every article so that people understand, why does this matter? Yeah. Why should I care? Because I know I keep calling it, you know, indigenous topics, indigenous issues, but really these are just human issues that happen to disproportionately affect certain communities and everyone should care about them. Everyone should feel a stake in in trying to bring about positive change. Yeah. I mean, I think that making it so that in the article people have context that whether they knew or not beforehand, I think it is so important because just the constant reminder of the problems that are currently being faced is so important. Like, say it again, say it again, say it again. I also want to bring up another interview you did for Cowboys and Indians, The Quest for Coexistence with Mo Brings Plenty. And knowing even from our personal relationship that you did love horses, you're a horse girl, you know, you're now doing all of this amazing work in your community, trying to amplify voices as much as you can. This was an article that I was reading and I was like, I feel like so many 
of the things that Kate is passionate about seems to coexist in this one article here. And I wanted to know if you as the writer of this article, if you felt that way, if you felt kind of that ability to now speak to people, presumably, about the issues that they have been struggling with in their own lives, but also to relate it to conversations about horses, about how that has impacted his life in a way how it's impacted your life as well. So I'm interested to know your feelings about that article, that interview, your feelings after it was done while it was taking place. Yeah, that one is is really special to me because Mo is just a really incredible person. And hopefully I was able to capture some of that in in the story. And we did relate on just so many different different topics. And that's one thing that's important too. You know, I don't know if you've seen the show Reservation Dogs, but yep. it does a really good job of showing both the traumas that, you know, contemporary Native communities face, but also the joy that that there is. And so even though Mo and I were talking about, you know, some really heavy topics like suicide and identity and authentic representation and things like that we also did bond over over horses and i actually went and spent time um on his ranch with him and you know he we went we went riding and so that was a a really incredible experience and also um we we did a sweat lodge ceremony while we were there. And it was interesting because I, at that point, that took place last May. I, at that point, was having this building feeling of, I don't know where I'm supposed to be going. I think that I did know. Looking back, I did know. It was that I really needed to come to terms with it. Mm. So that was just so incredible to be a part of that ceremony and it was very it was very healing and it was this this moment of you know talk about clarity that i really was grappling with where where do i go what do i do and then i think that was a point of clarity for me but i wasn't totally ready to accept it yet um and and i will say too that you know for me in my journey to really reconnect with my heritage that telling all of these stories has been a really healing part of my journey that's not the only reason why i'm doing it but selfishly there is something that that i feel like i'm i'm giving back to you know the the native community at large in a way that for a lot a long time in my life I didn't do because I wasn't aware of it so Mm -hmm. sort of making up for some lost time well I think it's incredible and even though you can't necessarily see those kinds of things in the moment isn't it romantic once you do realize it it's kind of just like gosh I am where I'm supposed to be well and again you look back with such everyone else around you I remember when I when I finally made this decision that this is where I was going to focus my time and attention and I was ready to, you know, like put that out into the universe. And I told friends and they're like, well, yeah, 
<laughs> and and it's just interesting that you know these people who can see you more clearly than you can see yourself and i wasn't i wasn't ready for this at an earlier time i truly believe that my journey is supposed to have gone exactly how it did and unfold exactly how it has and now i feel really ready for this when i mentioned that i didn't think i had i won that james beard award that i wasn't quite ready for it if I at that point had been sort of thrust onto this national stage as someone who, you know, really amplifies these indigenous stories, I think that that would have been really overwhelming for me at that time, because I think I would have really still been questioning if if I was the right person to do that, if I had a right to do that. So, again, I, I feel like I'm in the, the right place now. It's amazing. Well, Kate... I could literally talk to you forever. There are so many questions that are still on my mind and maybe we'll have you back one day, but I do have to give you your time back because your time is important, especially as a writer. But before we end, I do want to do a speed round of questions with you to leave the people off with. Sometimes they're speedy. Sometimes they're not. So don't feel bad if you can't answer them quickly. I listen to lots of podcast episodes and the rapid fire to me is always like the most stressful. Daunting. I think like... What, what would I say in those moments? But okay, you know, I'm ready. sometimes I write these questions down and I'm like, Emma, put yourself in their shoes. Would you be able to answer these questions as fast? And sometimes it's no, but I'm challenging you here. Okay. Okay. All okay. right. The piece that you're most proud of. Um, I would I would say that it's my my guardian essay about my own story. And and it took telling so many other people's stories and having seeing their bravery. Mo is a perfect example of seeing their bravery and being so honest that it made me realize that I could put myself out there in that vulnerable way. So incredible. Okay, your dream person to interview that you have not yet been able to interview. Um, so I really would like to interview Lily Gladstone, not just because of the Oscar buzz, um, but because she's just super incredible. I also... Um, by the time that this podcast comes out, this will already be live. So I, I today interviewed Kaylee Reese, who is in True Detective. That's amazing. Um, and she is absolutely incredible. I wanted to, I don't, I don't fangirl, or if I do, I try to keep it inside. <laughs> but I sort of wanted to be like, so, so we can be friends now, or do you want to hang? I never um, keep it inside. You got a fangirl. <laughs> <laughs> and and I would say, you know, I think there are so many there are so many yet to be discovered native voices and people that I hope I have the opportunity to to speak with and to amplify their stories. 1000% and Lily Gladstone too, if I'm not mistaken, she is within your same class of 40 under 40, correct? Yes. So I feel like you have an in. <laughs> maybe, yeah, maybe I'll just be like, hey, so. Hey, we're on the same line. Yes. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Okay. Movie of the moment. Mm. Oh, that one's tough. Um, so obviously, I probably should say Killers of the Flower Moon. Um, that said, I want to put a disclaimer with that, that 
There are so many other Native stories out there. Another one of them that Apple actually just picked up that Lily Gladstone stars and it's called Fancy Dance that they're going to be um, they're going to be featuring. So Killers of the Flower Moon, I think, has really thrust some of these important issues and stories onto this global stage, but is by no means the last. Yeah, great, great answer. Okay, a trend in your industry that you're currently on board with and one that you're not. Okay, Um, I'm going to start with what I'm not on board with. I have a very, I'm, I'm basically afraid of AI. And not because I'm not afraid that it's going to take over my job. I feel like I bring important, specific value. I agree. I just am sort of worried that it might take over my life or my identity. No, it's true. And and I think there are ways that it can probably help people work smarter, but I'm I'm pretty fearful of it. In my mind, it turns into a Black Mirror episode. Definitely. Um. So that I'm I'm like I'm holding it at arm's length. In terms of what I'm a trend I'm on board with. Okay, another trend I'm not on board with, but it leads to what I am on board with. Okay. There have in the past year been a horrendous number of layoffs in the media industry. Every and and you know, you're sort of like how can these media outlets still even operate without them. And sometimes, you know, the entire staff is being let go in a single day and the the media outlet is folding. So really not a fan of that. Um, For instance, the Los Angeles Times laid off a large portion of its Washington bureau during a presidential election year. It's really important that people are able to get their news and, you know, information from trusted sources. So that's a, I'm not on board with that. Mm-hmm. But that leads to something I am on board with that I'm seeing in part because they've been forced to. I'm seeing a lot of people in the media industry, whether that's because they were laid off or because they're seeing sort of the state of the union, that they're just going for it that they're like all right now i'm going to work on that book or now i'm going to pivot this way and so even though it comes out of you know a negative trend um that might be the silver lining on that yeah that's another great answer kate these speed round questions you're doing they're not great very with. rapid i think no, they're taking a long time to that's okay them. that's okay because again we're just we're getting great like tidbits of information from you and I feel like people get to know you even more doing these types of questions another one a social media account you can think of off the top of your head that you think people should follow it's called so it's an organization called illuminative um it you spell it's spelled how it sounds illuminative and the purpose of this organization it's indigenous women-led and the idea is to really um, combat indigenous erasure that has taken place historically, but also to, you know, sort of do what I'm doing, but on a, a much, you know, broader, higher level to amplify these important stories and issues. And they actually, it's incredible, have been on the forefront of, um, 
overseeing a lot of important research about, okay, so what does authentic representation in media actually look like? Where are we currently Mm -hmm. at? Where do we need to go? And they actually create guides of how can you, you know, how can, for instance, Hollywood execs work with, you know, native creatives in a way that feels more representative. So go there, you know, go find them now, follow (laughs) them. It's really, it's, it's beautiful, but it also is super educational and, you know, they don't hold back. So some of it is very celebratory. Some of it is, is very eye-opening but that to me is is the go-to for people who want to learn more about indigenous topics. That's great. Everyone go follow. All right. Favorite Artful Living cover. Hmm. Okay. Um, that's tough. I know. So this one, I don't even remember when it was. It must have been in, it was early days. Um, there's a very famous polo player named Nacho. Mm-hmm. We, he just goes by his first name. He also is a Ralph Lauren model. And we have, um, it might have been 2011 or 2012, we have a, a photo of him and then his wife, who is also an equestrian and a model. And they're, they're riding together through this field. And so that one to me, obviously, for obvious reasons, has a special place in my heart. Amazing. I love it. All right. The last question. You may have it. You may not. But a quote that you live by. Hmm. And it can be something of your own, too. You are a wordsmith yourself. So (laughs) it can be something that Kate Nelson said. You know, I've had different – can I give a long rapid You can give a long answer? one for this, yes. Okay, so I have, similar to how, you know, I, I was always sort of yearning for a mentor. Um, I was sort of yearning for something that would be like my mantra. So in my, my first job working in PR, my boss, at one point when she started her, her company, she was told, leap and the net will appear, mm-hmm. which I thought was so beautiful. But that also was not mine. There was a point at which I couldn't figure out what I wanted to do, sort of a recurring theme throughout my career. And then I sort of reappropriated the the Nike motto and I was like, just fucking do it. Like, <laughs> just, just do it. One that I jokingly have said recently, especially during these times that I had to trust that I was going in the right direction, but I didn't really know. And it's funny that now maybe this is my mantra um, because it sounds like something that, a, you know, Buddha, I don't know if Buddha <laughs> said a whole lot of things, but Probably you know, not. that maybe some, some monk would have written down um, that in, in moments, especially over the past year where I've been unsure of where I'm going, I have jokingly said all will be illuminated, meaning like you will you will understand, you know, whether that is because there is a, a light or a direction. But then honestly, I started really like believing it and leaning into it. And I would say it sort of jokingly. So but I think that that might 
might now be my mantra. I'll, I'll adopt a new mantra, I'm sure, at some point. But for right now, I'm in this all will be illuminated phase. I love that so much because that really is... I mean, mantras sometimes I feel you think that they're like a joke and you say them as a joke and it's like funny words you say to yourself in the mirror to get ready in the morning to give yourself a little bit more power. But those words, words matter, obviously you know this. And it's like things like that, that you maybe just thought, oh, that's kind of silly, but you're now seeing that as a really impactful thing in your life. Even if it does take a new form, I think that's amazing. All will be illuminated. Yes. And and again, it was like you said, it started out as sort of a joke, but I started to take comfort in that. And when I would have a moment where I was I was pretty worked up and I would just be like, all will be illuminated. And a little bit, it would make me smile because it's sort of ridiculous. But then it's also, you know, if there's one thing that I hopefully have impressed upon upon you and listeners is sometimes you just got to trust. Oh, 1000%. And you've definitely impressed that upon me. I mean, for as long as I've known you, for the conversations that I have been privileged to have with you, I have always taken so much out of the conversation. This is one of the best conversations I've ever been able to have with you. And I think it's so impactful. I can't wait for other people to hear it, hopefully be inspired by it. I know that I am. So thank you so much for coming on, for sharing your story, for walking us through your career trajectory, and for just letting people know that whatever path you take, there is light at the end of the tunnel, even if it's not a tunnel. Maybe it's light just right in front of you. You just kind of have to find it yourself. I love your journey. So thank you so much. Can you please tell everybody where they can find you, where they can follow your work, read your beautiful words? Yeah. So um, I I have all of my work on my website, which is Kate A, like the letter A, Nelson.com. Turns out there are a lot of Kate Nelsons out there. So <laughs> someone had already taken Kate Nelson.com. Classic. And then I'm on Instagram at K, the letter K, dot A, dot Nelson. I will say I am not a social media whiz, but I'm trying to get better. And so I, I you know, post a lot of my work there as well, as, as well as other just news and updates that I, that I hope people are aware of. Well, I love it. And I love just being able to click into something. But I will say, I also love reading articles on a laptop. So don't be afraid to do that. Get a bigger form. It makes it feel a little bit like print, in my opinion. I don't know if anybody else agrees, but I love it. Totally. (laughs) But thank you, Kate. Thank you so much. This has been so fun. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to Excuse My Reach. As always, you can find us on all major streaming platforms. Like, download, share with your friends, be kind to those around you, and don't be afraid to reach a little higher. Oh my gosh, that was amazing. Yay. (laughs) 